here until midnight. The Truth Verification Corporation. Mr. Keener. Mr. Keen, tracer of lost lies. Mr. Lie, tracer... No. What was his name? Mr. Keen, tracer of lost people. Mr. Trace Keener of lost traces. What was that, anyway? What was that? Dee-dee-dee... No. How groweth your garden of truths? Well, everyone has a few weeds here and there. Don't let the weeds bother you. They are but natural consequences of tilling the soil. One tilleth not, one groweth not. I always say. Of course we all love our fellow men, don't we? <laughs> it's what sets us aside from the beast, you know. The things in the field, right? It's like the other night at, oh, maybe seven, eight o'clock in the evening, just when the sun is going out down, falling below the western horizon on the other side of the long, thin buildings that overlook the river there. I'm walking along, and I see this barber shop on Lexington Boulevard, Avenue Street. Long, one of those long barber shops with about 15 chairs. There's about four old guys sitting in the first four chairs, barbers one dozing off, one reading the raising form, the other one paring his fingernails, and the fourth one just staring at the ceiling. There's this big sign in front. It says, no waiting. Plenty of chairs. Stop this insanity. And who is that person in there? Please move her to the left a little bit, will you? Just a little bit. Please. But that's that's not that's not easily done, actually, you know? No, ma'am, please. The other way. Please. All right, now, Joe, you stand over there now. Come on. That's your job. We can't get anyone to do anything for us here tonight. But on the other hand, you know, if you look carefully, you will find that there must be at least three-quarters of the population sitting out there at night, and there's a certain kind of person, you know, that I think, I think is like a mushroom about to burst through the soil in darkness. Now, now there are many things that will, that will affect this mushroom's growth. I have noticed several little traces of things going through our atmosphere. I don't know how to describe just sort of a litmus paper, you know, just reaching out there, changing colors, and varying a little bit when things move through. Now, one of the things I, I have detected is that there must be at least, oh, I'd say 200,000 people 
under the age of 25 who have a terrible yearning to make a movie. To make a movie. To write a novel. To act in a play. To act in a movie. To, uh, to express. And to be applauded. Each one of these things, by the way, involves a large amount of applause. That's very important, to be applauded. Would you make a movie if they wouldn't let you put your name on it? Really? I wonder how many actors would act if they would not allow them to use their name. Have you ever read the fine print at the bottom of an acting contract now? Do you know they specify the size of the type to be used in the billing as opposed to the size of the type to be used by other people, 164th the entire page, 132nd of the entire... Oh, it gets as complicated as that. Until finally nobody appears in any play, movie, hopscotch game without being given some kind of billing. And way down at the bottom, you know, the little guys who used to be the also-rans now, they have what are called cameo billings. Little cameo things come on. Appearing as Mr. Glotz, Charlie Brown. Also starring. Also starring, starring, starring. Are you starring in your life, by the way? You want to make a movie? Really? Really want to see that big thing up there on the screen? All of that stuff going past those, those wonderful, deep, warm, dark feelings you have about life. I could see this guy lying on a beach with this chick. And the moon is hanging out there over the ocean. The breezes are blowing quietly past. And you can hear the sound of the waves laving the shore. You know that nice sucking sound? Shoom. gently ever so softly and so easily. And she turns to him, and in his ear she whispers, Darling, darling. No, no, Heinz, I know, I'm none. No, not yet, too late now. We have missed the point. <laughs> I'll have to do that again some other night. tell you kids about making movies. First thing you got to have is technique. That's a nasty word. And you got to know something about doing it. And so she lies there in his arms and the wind is blowing past them. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, it's all part of the whole thing, you know? It's all part of the gutsiness of being alive. And suddenly she turns to him and with her eyes alight whispers in his ear, darling, let's, let's, darling, let's, Let's let's make a movie. All it there, all it all. You're crying out loud. <laughs> what a kick in the <laughs> I won't tell you this has actually happened to a friend of mine. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, the, of course this is this is uh, this is not the beat. 
this is not to be vilified because it's all it's it's, it's our time and it has to be recorded you know it is not jd salingerville it's our world and it's it's a wonderful someday i imagine i imagine it's going to go full circle and some chick is going to say to a guy with her eyes alight darling let's produce a spectacular on tv i feel it inside of me we can get mary martin i can get richard rogers we can get this thing really going and it'll be really love, 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 and everyone will love us. TV guide will love us. Darling, let's, let's, let's produce a spectacular, a big one. Really? <laughs> oh, boy. Hold it. <laughs> you know, I, hold it there. I, I, I wonder if you know that people who do these things really do feel that they're doing an act of love. You know that? It's, uh, it's, it's, an, act of, it's an act of affirmation of something can't figure out what it is but it's affirming something you know i think that that uh i have seen i've seen most of the late movies uh when i say the late movies most of the movies that have been that have been touted very highly in the last oh four or five years uh the whole italian series uh the uh the french new wave series and uh, even a few of the american uh, highly touted movies and there's one theme that runs through almost all of them. And that's the theme of the emptiness of modern day life. Have you noticed that? It's that one theme. Uh, well, the, the Italian series, certainly. La Ventura, the whole series of, of the uh, so-called impressionistic, neo-realistic films. All these words, by the way, cancel each other out, if you know what the words mean, but they're always used. Impressionistic, neo-realistic. Uh, I wonder what the old realism was like. All this realism is always called neo-realistic or new realism. What was the old realism like? I wonder how that was. How long has it been since you've seen any of the old realisms out? What were the old realism? All those, all those uh, Priscilla Lane movies? Is that what, all those Jimmy Stewart pictures and all that? Was that the old realism or what? I, anyway, the, the whole thing revolves around one point, and that is the, the, uh, the emptiness of life. Now I, I can't I can't entirely I can I can see that this is true I mean that there are a lot of empty areas in life but has this uh, has this never been untrue hasn't this always been an obvious thing to millions of people or do you like most people believe that all other times were great that uh, that it was the past that was so wonderful people had real values in those days I heard a guy the other day on the Long John show and he was a clean bearded youth of 22. And uh, one of these clear-eyed kids, you know, from Princeton who speak for the young American for freedoms people. Great kind of freedom, too, that they're for. It is, in a sense, the freedom to be allowed to kick you, you know where. I mean, if it's my desire to do it, well, by George, that's freedom, you know. And uh, I remember him saying something that was pretty interesting. He says, you know, one thing about the people of the past, they were happy. They were happy because their lives were simple. They had... A, a kind of truth in their lives. <laughs> I couldn't help but think of old Uncle Carl sitting on the back porch with his banjo in the rain. You know? He'd a, he'd a, he'd a, of course, Uncle Carl didn't know that he was one of the people of the past. And on the other hand, I couldn't help but think of the, the 87 million people that, that lie out there in that dark underbelly of the Midwest, stretching from here all the way to God knows where. Out there with that deep, simple truth of honest lives all around them. And the sound of the TV sink buzzing, uh, occasionally the sound of the plumbing roaring out in the back 
all of this going on, and yet somehow there's a deep, simple truth. And yet there is a deep, simple truth, but it has nothing to do with the conservatives or the liberals or the Democrats or the Republicans. I don't know what it has to do with, but it doesn't have to do with any of these things. And I'm curious about that. I suspect that, that the mechanization that we have in our lives, all the, all the means of, of communicating so quickly with one another, have in a sense destroyed our sense of being ourselves, really. Uh, it's easy to become passionate. You know, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think of 87 million people all being thrilled at the same time by Mary Martin at the same moment doing Peter Pan at the same instant on a gigantic coaxial cable. Isn't that a kind of a warm thought in a way? Is it really? <laughs> and the next day, we are applauded for it. Uh, the papers all say a magic moment last night was experienced by 87 million people. The rating was, was a fantastic one. And uh, whether this is good or bad is not the point. It changes people to the, to the final to the final end, where they all are secretly aware of an emptiness in life. And no wonder all the pictures about the emptiness in life are, are really very important. They are really, and particularly to younger people. I'm, I'm interested in some of the misconceptions that we have in our business. One of the things is this. Most people think that the kids watch television. You know, in our business, in television radio, they always talk about the kids monopolizing the TV set. Get it out of your skull. I know who the TV people are. The TV people are roughly today in America the people between the ages of, oh, I would say, I would say roughly 35 and 60. I would say these are the real TV addicts. Perhaps even a little older than 35. These are the people who, who every night approach the TV set as another free show. And the rest of the people, you see, who are younger than those ages, approach it as television, which is something that they've already rejected, for, by and large. Large numbers of them have, and that's one of the hopes of our time. Uh, they've rejected a lot of these artificial forms of entertainment and rejected them very hard and strong. And it's interesting to note that I will get, I will get dozens of letters from, from kids, and the kids will often say this one thing, my old man makes me go to bed early and, and I have to sneak the radio up and I have to hide it under my pillow and I have to buy batteries every couple of days to keep it going because the old man thinks I'm wasting my time unless I'm watching television. When you're watching television, somehow that's wholesome. You're not wasting your time as long as you're watching Dr. Brothers or, or uh, as long as you're watching some late film. But this is an interesting problem in our day. It, it, it doesn't really have much to do, actually with reality, or, in fact, it does it have to do with conscience or morals? It just has to do with a free show. And there it is, and it's on, and it's very bright. You know, speaking of, uh, of free shows and that problem, uh, we've, come, we've come, in a way, a kind of full circle of vicarious life. Uh, I'm, I'm always intrigued by the number of people I know who have stopped talking about books that no longer do the literati talk about books today. They talk about films. Films have replaced books. Are you aware of that? That, that the amount of, of insight you can bring to a Fellini film is your measure of hipness. The amount of put-down you can apply today to an Ingmar Bergman film is a measure of your hipness. 
the amount of scorn that you can heap, of course the scorn is not even, is not even no longer necessary upon Hollywood products, is another measure of your, your literary attainments. And, and the way people used to talk, uh, in, in fact, uh, they used to say, I remember guys who read a great deal used to say, I, I just can't help it, I, I read two, three books a week. Well, today now, you're measured the same way by the number of hours you clock in a waiting line in front of a, an art movie. The New Yorker, the Paris, you name it, you know. It's the number of hours you clock <laughs> in front of these various houses. Uh, and so it's a kind of a, a new, a, a kind of neo-vicariousness, if, uh, if there is such a word, a neo-vicarious existence. Now, now I don't know... Uh, I, I don't know about... I, I, just, I just can't accept any principle that says life today is more empty than it was. I cannot believe this. I think we're becoming more conscious of a large number of the gaps that there are no answers for in existence. I think man a hundred years ago was, was just... his life was just as empty. I think a thousand years ago it was just as empty over large stretches, except for one interesting thing. That is, hardly anybody ever recorded that. There were, there, nobody was writing about that phase of life. Nobody was putting it down. Uh, certainly, uh, the, the age of heroes did not touch the great number of people on the street. That if you're, if you're over there watching King Arthur and Camelot, uh, you're watching Guinevere and Lancelot, you don't see all the people that are not there inside Camelot. Camelot was an island. Uh, and, and yet we like to judge the Middle Ages on one island. We like to judge uh, France on Paris. We like to judge America by New York. But there's a lot of stuff out there in the darkness beyond those flats. And no one really quite ever puts that down. No one ever quite puts it into form so that you can understand it or see it or even care about it. And yet when we do it, we, don't, we never do it honestly. Marty, for example... Uh, was was one of the most honest, dishonest pictures I've ever seen. <laughs> it ain't the way Marty is. Because there was an element of sweetness in Marty that is rarely ever found in the Martys of the world. Ever. And there's a kind of an understanding and a poetic justice in Marty's life that is rarely ever found. This can be a biological or a sociological sport. And you can accept it for that. But you have to ignore large areas of truth and reality to do it. And it's there. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, if you have if you have come out uh, out of some kind of darkness and you see a little light and go back into darkness and go back into light again, eventually you will begin to see that it's almost all the same. That that uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other, as the old canard has it. That you cannot you cannot say today's life was any more was any more terrifying or any more paralyzing than any life at any other time. And people keep yelling, they keep writing letters, indignant letters to me, and they say, well, yes, but we've got now the, we've got the problem of total war now. Uh, they never had total war before, the problem of total, oh, come on, that's a total, that's a total, uh, that's a total ridiculous statement, because uh, a war is always total for anybody who's in it. Uh, a man who was, who was running up the, up the hillside at, on D-Day, that war was just as total for him as any war could possibly be. And a man who was caught in the Battle of Hastings, that was just as total. And, of course, we like to put, we like to put all kinds of uh, value judgments on death. 
somehow it is not as bad to be killed by a mace as it is to be killed by a shell fragment. And again, it's not quite as bad to be killed by a shell fragment as it is to be killed by fallout. And then, of course, we like to pretend that, well, yeah, but this is the first time that civilians are involved. Oh, boy. You've never been in Europe, if you say that. I would like to know the number of civilians that died in World War II. And interestingly enough, we almost always refer only to Hiroshima or Nagasaki. We hardly ever talk about all the other civilian populations that never saw an atom bomb. How many people do you think, for example, died in Cologne in the night bombing raids there? Do you know anything about that? You'd be interested to know that more than died under the atom bomb. Do you know that? It's fascinating. Uh, but you never hear about these things. So somehow each kind of death becomes either worse or better, or in between, and so on. Of course, never, never accepting the fact that it's all death. And somebody keeps raising a big sign that says, ban the bomb. Well, <laughs> I wish it were possible. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intriguing thing then to, to, to really realize in your own life uh, Aldous Huxley wrote a beautiful essay on this subject. Speaking of essays, we have a commercial here. We better do it. It's from Mandarin House. And um, if you haven't tried Mandarin House, I would just like to recommend it respectfully to you. Uh, I don't like to, to uh, talk about people's food habits. You know, that's a very interesting thing. The other day, a group of kids came up here, and uh, somehow I got tangled up with them. A whole, a whole group of listeners from Wake Forest uh, down in North Carolina came in. And they, they wanted to go to the Mandarin house. And I could see that clean, scrubbed apple pie look that you get out there just beyond the, just beyond the uh, Jersey Shore, where, where the average American believes meat and potatoes and apple pie, and once in a while a Coke when he's really feeling racy on a Saturday night. And maybe I'll have a glass of red wine. <laughs> and that's really going way out. Well, uh... I, I, don't, I don't like to recommend, I can only say this, that if you're interested in really fine oriental food, I would like to recommend the Mandarin House. In fact, I have a note here. Uh, I, I get all kinds of letters from people, and here is a letter from a listener. He says, Shepard, thank you for calling our attention to the Mandarin House. The food is indeed excellent. But here's the line I wanted to read. He says, if you tried the fresh lychee nuts, wow. <laughs> Let me tell you, wow, it's easy enough to go down and get all lychee nutted up. Oh, boy. Uh, yes, I would recommend this. If you've never had lychee nuts, uh, this is, they're not nuts, by the way, in case you're interested. Uh, they are a peculiar kind of ice-cold fruit that's served on, on chopped ice. And uh, you cannot describe what they are unless you... You know, it's just impossible to describe them. It's, it's, it's as impossible to describe them as it is to describe, let's say, papaya. And this has nothing to do with papaya. So it's an oriental delicacy, and if you go down to the Mandarin house and you want a, a superb dessert, order lychee nuts. I suspect they're, they're expensive <laughs> because they have about a three-week growing season. Did you know that, Walt? Yeah. Anyway, this is the Mandarin House, and it's on 13th Street between 6th and 7th in the village. 13th Street between 6th and 7th, and they're open every night until about, oh, I'd say midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and they're open on the weekends. They have a bar. It's a great place to go for a Sunday dinner. The Mandarin House, one of the finest northern, one of the finest northern oriental restaurants in this entire area. When I say northern, there's lots of kinds of food out of China, you know. And this happens to be northern Chinese. Very different. And don't ask them for chop suey. They don't sell it. Get it out of your skull. And forget the egg foo young. No egg foo young. Forget it. No chow mein. 
I remember my uncle. I had this nutty uncle. Uh, this is uh, no more commercial now. Forget it. Uh, you know, this is a funny thing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so intrigued by one thing that is hardly ever reported here in America. You know, we're always talking about the sameness of American cities, but they really aren't, you know. That uh, if you get to know American cities, you will find that the mores and the attitudes and the ways of life are so different. For example, in Chicago, in Chicago, they don't have Chinese restaurants, as we call them here. They call them chop suey joints. In Chicago, they're chop suey joints. They really are. And, and about every third block has a chop suey joint. Now, hardly anybody eats in the chop suey joint. They send out to the chop suey joint to get the stuff there. And it comes in these, these big cardboard things, you know, that they put, you know, they put clams and stuff in, you know, like they put goldfish and things in with the little wire handles. And they always put a little tube of, t of soy sauce in every, everything. It's the soy sauce, you know, stuck down on the bottom. And there's only three things, you can, four things you can order from these Chinese chop suey joints out there in Chicago. And there's a funny thing about them. There is a close affinity between a chop suey joint in Chicago, not here. Uh, in New York, there is a peculiar fluorescent light quality to all Chinese restaurants. I don't know why this is. Fluorescent light and oil cloth upholstering of a brilliant red and a kind of peculiar bilious blue. You know what I mean about the Chinese restaurant? And those awful those awful, terrible drawings that are on the walls. Oh, they're the world's worst oriental art finds their way into in the Chinese restaurants, mostly here in New York. It's very peculiar. And everybody loves it for some reason. There's a couple of them on the east side that are unbelievable for their decor. Just just unbelievable. I mean, it's right out of Woolworth. I mean, you know, you know what I mean by it. Have you ever gone down into the basement of some of the dime stores here in New York? Any places, no matter where you are. And just walked around and looked at the objet d'art, the, the kind of thing that the, that the man on the street digs as an art object. You know what I mean by the big, for example, the great big gilt panther, you know, with a, with a, with a real chain around his neck, and this panther is, and that, then there will be a very shiny black panther with a, with a bronze rod coming out of his back and a great big chartreuse green shade hanging over the top, you know, <laughs> this kind of art. And it's just wild. Some of this stuff is, is unbelievable. Well, this is the kind of feeling that you get in so many chop suey joints. But there's a quality in Chicago that has to be, well, I have to tell it to you because it isn't the way it is back here. It's not like this in New York. What's, what is Ed doing anyway? He keeps running back and forth here. What's going on here? <laughs> in, in Chicago, there is a, a very close affinity between a chop suey joint and a, and a mortuary parlor. Yes, it is a very close affinity, and I can remember once in a while being taken into these places, and they're, and they're, they're very silent. And there's a kind of high-backed wooden booth quality about them, and they're dark. And these little people pad around, and always back where they have the kitchen, there are three or four uh, silent Orientals who are eating, always. They're always eating in the back. And then you see off to their left, there are these palmettas and palms growing. And it's a, it's a deadly silence in a Chicago chop suey joint. Well, the things that you can order in a Chicago chop suey joint. Now, this is... And don't say, well, they're like that in the Bronx. They are not like that in the Bronx. You know, I live in New York, and I have, I have eaten in many Oriental restaurants and been around them here in New York, but not, they're different in Chicago. They're called chop suey joints. They really are. That's the phrase for them. And the food in them consists of egg foo young, 
And then you can get two varieties of egg foo young. You get egg foo young with chicken, egg foo young with shrimp, with soy sauce. Then you get chop suey, you get vegetable chop suey or beef chop suey. Maybe on Wednesday, chicken chop suey. And then there's another interesting one called chow mein. You get chicken chow mein, or you can get uh, plain, plain chow mein, or you can get beef chow mein. And then the final, most interesting one, is a horror known as wormane. You can get wormane there. Have you ever heard of wormane? Worms, wormane, worms. <laughs> Very strange, awful stuff. And there used to be on a Sunday when you'd come around this, this one nutty uncle we had, Uncle Al, was the guy that played the violin and uh, was, was considered the artist in the family because he once went to a, a Rubenstein concert. And he took his son there, and, and they talked about that for years in the family. It was a long story. And uh, old Uncle Al used to, on a Sunday, when you would come to his house, his house was entirely paved with linoleum, entirely. It was a complete linoleum house, blue and white checkered linoleum everywhere. It was linoleum in the front room, and every place there was this linoleum. Well, old, old Uncle Al used to always say, well, how about a treat? I'm going to send out to the chop suey joint, and I'm going to spring for chop suey. Okay. And his aunt, by the way, his, this is an unreported aunt. I should report this aunt. Very interesting aunt, Aunt Kate. Uh, <laughs> she was another one on the far outskirts of the family, the revolving out there. And, and old Aunt Kate, old Aunt Kate would say, oh, come on, Al. They're so tired of chop suey all the time. He'd say, come on, who's tired? Of, who can be tired of chop suey? And old Al would say, all right, well, of course, what are you going to say? Well, actually, nobody really was tired of chop suey. Everybody was ready to go all the time with his stuff. And he would say, okay, what, what'll it be? Now, let's, let's get the orders down. And so he would start ordering this stuff. And, of course, inevitably, what he would really want to order is Wormane, the one thing nobody liked. But Al liked Wormane. It was the only guy I ever heard who liked Wormane. Have you ever heard of Wormane? You heard of it? You have heard of it. Well, of course, <laughs> I'm interested because I never saw it on any menu here. It's not Wormane. It's Wormane. W-O-R-M-M-E-I-N. That's it, huh? Well, then I'm glad to know that this was not a figment of Al's imagination. And about, and about 45 minutes later, three of us, the kids, would be sent down to this joint to pick up the wormane, the chop suey, and the egg for young. And we would come up there, and he would give us each one an almond cookie. For you, an almond cookie. We'd say, for you, an almond cookie. And for you, an almond cookie. <laughs> and the three of us would go back with this, with this 14-pound load of glue that <laughs> Glue with soy sauce in it. And we have returned from the chop suey joint. This is a Chicago phenomenon. Another Chicago phenomenon, in case you're interested in, in the world of, of the Chicago eating habits, is Chicago was great for baked ham. About every third restaurant says, and a great big thing in the window says, our specialty, Virginia baked ham. And you get in and this, you know, this great big chunk of greasy stuff is floating around there with a little... For some reason or other, they always cook it with, with uh, brown sugar and pineapple. I guess that's to protect you from the ham taste, which gets pretty gamey when it's three or four weeks old. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's Chicago, you know. You, you, you live the way you live. It's, it's real. It's hairy. Let me tell you. All right, so you're laughing. The White Sox beat the Yankees today, wise guy. Don't be so smart. And then there was another thing called called the, the, the chili parlor. Let me tell you, Dad. The chili parlor, it was the kind of stuff that if you dropped it on the counter, it would hiss. When it <laughs> served in pure lava bowls. 
It was it was 16 cents a, a thing, and then there was, of course, Chili Mac. Do you know what is a Chili Mac? None of these things have anything to do with, with New York life. You don't know what Chili Mac is? Oh, let me tell you, Chili Mac, I'll take it out. And we used to have all kinds of hunky restaurants, Pollock restaurants, all up and down the street, all sorts of things. One thing they never heard of there, though, they didn't have kosher hot dogs. One great thing that they had in almost every restaurant in Chicago was, was Polish sausage. Oh, yeah, yeah, bowl, a bowl of them to the Pashik, a Polish sausage, oh, oh, I got the whole thing down. Oh, it all comes back to me in all of its sordidness, all of its sorrowness. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Help your country as you help yourself. Buy United States savings bonds. Your savings bond dollars underwrite your country's might, help keep America freedom in your future. And savings bonds are a great way for you to save. They're safe and they're profitable. United States savings bonds. This is WOR AM and FM, your RKO general station in New York. At the WOR time signal, exactly 12 o'clock midnight. 